Hey, it's Steve Lehman, and welcome back to the Asymptote Podcast, featuring interviews and readings from the latest issue of our online journal. The winter 2021 issue of Asymptote marks the 10th anniversary of the journal and features work from 31 countries. But today, we're going to focus on Brazil. My guest is the award-winning novelist and translator from Portuguese, Padma Viswanathan. Her translation of the short story, The Woman Who Didn't Know How to Die, by Adelice Sosa, appears in the winter 2021 issue of Asymptote. It's surreal, thought-provoking, and beautifully written and translated. And you can read it for free at asymptotejournal.com. Padma has recently translated the novel Sao Bernardo by Graciliano Ramos. She's also a playwright and the best-selling author of two novels called The Toss of a Lemon and The Ever After of Ashwin Rao. She's an associate professor in fiction writing and literature at the University of Arkansas and is the recipient of the 2017 Porter Prize. At the end of the episode, you'll hear Adelice Sosa read a short excerpt from The Woman Who Didn't Know How to Die in the original Portuguese, followed by a reading in English by Padma herself. But first, here's my conversation with Padma Visonathan. Hi, Padma. Thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. In an interview with Miguel Conde for Words Without Borders, you talked about some of the reasons for your interest in Brazil, including religious syncretism, uh, research for a play you were writing, and your love of Brazilian music. When did you decide you wanted to learn Portuguese? It was, yeah, it was around the time that you're describing. So I'm going to say over 20 years ago, because of this strange uh, assortment of uh, motivations that came together in, in a funny way, I was looking into syncretic practices uh I'd been led to that by research for my first novel, which takes place in Tamil Nadu in, in South India, in the part of India where my parents are from. And Tamil Nadu has a very uh, interesting set of syncretic practices, very different from those that we see in the Americas, but reading about them and trying to understand the historical context of these different religious collisions led me to read about Brazil and to become very interested in Brazilian religious music, actually. And then at around the same time, as I uh, told Miguel, uh, Luaka Bop and perhaps Real World started bringing into the North American market Brazilian popular music, which uh, just captivated me. It was brilliant. So this is the late 90s. Um, and also at that time, however, I was head. Uh, I was living in Edmonton, Alberta, where uh, close to where I'm from, and I was head of the Amnesty International Artist Network, our small local cell. And the regular artist network was headed by a guy from Argentina, who uh, he and his wife both had suffered terribly during that country's dictatorship in the '80s. And he said to me, "I would love to see a play about." human rights issues in my region. That same winter, they brought to Edmonton a Brazilian police officer to do training in community policing. And I uh, made friends with this man who was very candid with me um, and talked to me about the, the situation. I had, as a member of Amnesty, written a lot of letters to the Brazilian government about various uh, people who were suffering human rights abuses there. And he uh, he was very 
lucid, as I said, very candid with me. And I started to become interested in the possibility that I could write a play. I started one. I mean, it turns out I actually wrote a, a whole draft after um, putting together a proposal. I went to Brazil to do research for it. And ahead of that visit, started to learn Portuguese. I mean, it's sort of amazing to me now that I, I went there with only maybe three months of uh, of lessons. But even though eventually I, I decided I I didn't have sufficient history and heft behind me to write a convincing play. That is to say, as I said, I drafted one, but I didn't think it it should make it beyond the first stages. But that was really what set me down that road. The woman who taught me Portuguese initially became a very close friend of mine. She's uh, an amazing uh, artist in her own right, a choreographer and performance artist called Sheila Hibeiru. And a few years later, I, I continued Portuguese lessons with her. So that's my background. I didn't have, I still don't have a great deal of formal instruction beyond that, although I've made various efforts to uh, to receive other sorts of refinement and training along the way. When I talked to the translator Anton Herr in February, he told me that most of the translators he knows, um, including himself, kind of fell into translating unintentionally. Is that true for you as well? Was translation ever something you thought you might want to do when you started learning Portuguese? Nope, I'm another one of those accidental translators. Um, Again, several biographical accidents happened. I ended up marrying a translator of Italian literature. My husband is Jeff Brock. And Jeff got a job here in Arkansas, where we now live. Um, And his job was in the MFA program at the University of Arkansas, which includes tracks not only in poetry and fiction, but in literary translation. So Jeff's a dual hire in poetry and translation. And he uh, he was actually not the first translator I was close with. Living in Montreal, I knew a number of people, including uh, another very close friend, Shelley Tepperman, who um, has a, a very strong history in translating new uh, French-Canadian and Mexican plays, actually. So I had some opportunity to observe uh, the process at close hand, but it had not occurred to me that I myself might try it until I landed in Arkansas and really had no one with whom to speak Portuguese. I felt like my language skills would uh, drop away if I didn't have a chance to continue engaging. We also had uh, small children, and so I knew my opportunities for travel would be limited. And so it was Jeff who suggested to me, my husband who suggested to me, perhaps I should consider translating as a way of continuing to experience a dynamic engagement with Brazil. And so at, at that point, in just for fun, I had translated um, actually a short story by Adelice Souza, whose uh, second story that I translated, Asymptote, has, has just published. And so it was that attempt at um, translating Adelice's work, which I encountered in uh, my, I did my own Masters of Fine Arts in Fiction at the University of Arizona in Tucson and sought out a Brazilian studies prof there because they had a Brazilian studies program. I sought out a prof to do an independent study with me and she gave me that story to read and I adored it so much I decided to try 
translating it just as a way of loving it even more. And so that was really what started me trying translation. But then it was Jeff who encouraged me because of this feeling of of isolation from this country that fascinated me uh, to try translating further. Did you find that um, translation filled that void you were looking for to get closer to the language and the culture? Oh, certainly to get closer to the language, although as with our own language, uh, as with English, I should say, each book I read in English that I love carries to me a new sense of my own language, right? And I would, of course, have to say the same for Portuguese, that reading Adelice, reading Graciliano Ramos, reading other um, Brazilian, or say Portuguese language authors, I'm reading a book right now by Paulo Lins, who, um, uh, his book, Destiquio Samba is Samba, is a novel set in 1930s uh, Rio. Um, Each one of these books gives me a fresh sense of what Portuguese is and can be and can sound like. So while certainly translating brings me closer to Portuguese, there's also a way in which um, it it not only gives me a, a, a fresh, a, a closer sense of what Portuguese is, but a fresher sense of what it might be. As you've already mentioned, you're a novelist and a playwright, as well as a translator. You've written two novels called The Toss of a Lemon and The Ever After of Ashwin Rao. How are writing and translating connected for you? Yeah, I've pondered this, and it seems to be really very different from one translator to another, one translator writer to another. In my own case, my first answer is that I feel translation to be closer to my reading process than it is to my writing process. That um, I, I heard my husband Jeff say that translation is the closest kind of reading that you can do. And certainly it's true for me that anytime I love a text, I want to find a way to explore it, not more formally, but certainly less casually, more seriously with greater engagement. I occasionally write essays. I certainly refer to books that interest me in my own prose, whether fiction or, you know, sometimes it might baby incursions into nonfiction. But in in my fiction, I I do make reference to other books that I love. But translation seems to me uh, an act of deep reading. And each act of translation is the equivalent of a kind of, you know, it's often considered to be a scholarly work. It's a way of studying and offering an interpretation of a text much in the way that scholarship can be. So in these complicated ways, I think it feeds my my reading mind to translate. Now, of course, the process of producing a translation and taking it through multiple drafts, I think as the drafts get closer and closer to a published form, it starts to feel more like writing in the sense that uh, a raw first draft of original writing also needs to be taken through this process of repeated um, estrangement, we might call it, and approximation, where 
rarely do we produce something original that is what we intended to produce. And so in revision, I often feel like my work is in conversation with my intentions. And all of that um, feels quite close to the process of revising a translation then. So while I would say that my early drafts of translation are, uh, are trying to show on the page what I'm hearing, increasingly by the time I revise it, it's what I wanted to say about that work. You translated Sao Bernardo by Graciliano Hamos. Uh, it was published originally in 1934 and is one of four novels that Hamos wrote. Um, you note in an essay for the Global Literature and Libraries Initiative that before your translation came out, practically none of his novels were still in print in English. How did you first hear about Hamos and why did you choose this novel to translate specifically? Yeah, um, well, uh, Graciano is, you know, very famous in in Brazil. He's one of the most um, widely read Brazilian authors. His final book, Vida Seca, is, is assigned to most Brazilian um, school students. So he's, it, it's impossible to have an interest in Brazil and not have heard of him. But I had only read that last book by him, uh, Vida Secas, which is rendered in English in the extant translation by Ralph Dimmick as Dry Lives. And while I had read it, and I can't remember if I read it in English or Portuguese, I knew that I came to it back in the day with a sense that it was this sort of social realist portrait of this family from the Brazilian backlands, um, suffering drought, fleeing drought, trying to find a livelihood, that it was a story of, you know, suffering and, and people ennobled by suffering, which is, um, is, is not a, a terrible project by any means, but it doesn't sound, even as I'm saying it, terribly literary, right? And I've come to understand in the years since that this happens in a number of ways. It can often happen to writers of color in the Anglophone context that our work is discussed more as uh, important in terms of its subject matter than uh, fascinating in literary terms as making literary advancements. That, that is to say, the content tends to get greater focus than the delivery. And I think that some of that happened to Graciliano Ramos, especially as regards this final novel, and possibly as regards the translation. When I thought about doing translation, I, I still felt, as I feel now and may always continue to feel, somewhat insecure about my Portuguese. And uh, my husband suggested I might try to find something that needs retranslation so that I would at least have, as a crutch if I needed it, a, a previous um, English translation. And so I went to the library. I saw again Graciliano Hamus's work. I noted that uh, for Vida Secas, it hadn't been translated <clears throat> since the 70s. And so I reread it. And uh, whether because of having a more open sensibility or perhaps because of my improved Portuguese, I realized that in fact it had enormous literary value and intrigue, that the work that uh, Graciliano does with the language in that book is extraordinarily sophisticated, that there are light touches of irony throughout it, and that he is giving these uh, figures, these characters in the book, this family, also a parrot, also a dog, 
a great sense of, even for the dog, humanity. Because unfortunately, humans are biased. We don't have uh, much better words to, to describe as sort of a rich, full, sympathetic, complex character. So I translated the first chapter of that book, Vita Secas, to try to produce a version closer to what I thought I had read. And it was published by by two lines. It's actually Vida Secas is a novel, but it's a novel in stories. So this is the first story. But then I found out that the rights to it in English were st- were held by University of Texas Press, and they were not ready to uh, try to bring out another version or to license it. So I started to look through his other um, Grasliano's other books, and um, San Bernardo was the one I really fell in love with. It's, it's extraordinarily. Uh, ironic. It's very funny. It's very dark in various ways, and uh, very different from Vida Secas. Uh, it takes place at a, in you know pro- approximately the same place. Castellano Hamos is from the northeast of Brazil, from Alagoas, and these are rural settings. He himself is uh, from a small town there, and uh, his father had a farm for a while. So he's speaking of characters in the landscape that that he knew, but really of, of rather different uh, people. In in the case of San Bernardo, the protagonist, São Paulo, transcends his former position as a ranch hand, ascends into the landowning class, but feels himself always to be in this liminal no-man's land between those places because he, in various ways, he disdains the bourgeois manners of the class he aspired to, but he also has some disdain from the, for the class uh, that he he departed. And so there was something so captivating to me about this this man, this voice, this character, and that was really how how I chose this book to, to devote myself to. You translated a beautiful story for the winter 2021 issue of Asymptote, written by Adelisi Sosa, called The Actress Who Didn't Know How to Die. It's about two actresses uh, in a traveling play. You and Sosa both have backgrounds in theater. How did that influence your translation? Certainly my theater background influenced me in the sense that it, it attracted me to this story, I think. The ways that Adelisi plays with notions of performance, the confusion of performance in real life, especially when actors are on the road and playing the same piece over and over again and have this intimacy with each other, both on and off stage. These are all the subjects of her story, and yet she takes it in such fascinating directions. Um, I sent the translation after it was published, I sent it to my old mentor, the guy who basically made me uh, a playwright, Don Don Kugler, who was at the time when I wrote my first play, I was living in Edmonton and Don Kugler had just taken over Northern Light Theater, which was in the same town. I wrote this little scene as part of a playwright circle at this theater company where I was working effectively as a, as a paid intern. I didn't know I wanted to write at the time. I uh, was doing whatever they needed from tour management to outreach. And then I joined their playwriting circle and I wrote this little play and he saw it and he commissioned it for his company and then coached me through a couple of years of writing drafts and ended up, he ended up producing the play, directing and producing the play. So really one of my, uh, you know, one of the people to whom I owe my my writing career. 
And uh, I sent it to him as a way of, again, continuing this dialogue on questions of performance and reality that I think many of us as, as writers live in, in that in-between space, feeling like we are producing art that then turns around and affects us, and how much more when the art is produced in collaboration with somebody as actors do, right? Um, and I could feel her mind working on these, these questions uh, over the course of the story. You are an associate professor of fiction writing and literature at the University of Arkansas, and you've written about teaching courses on Brazilian fiction and translation. How does teaching inform your writing and your translating? Yeah, I have only taught one course on Brazilian fiction, and I taught it in large part because I felt I was really uninformed. I mean, I know that all of us have gaps in our uh, quote-unquote educations, that even if we've managed to achieve whole degrees in areas of investigation, that our curiosity will often lead us into others where we feel we need you know, further instruction. And at this point in my life, because I am, as you say, it sounds so, you know, formal when you say it, associate professor of fiction writing and literature, I mean, I I feel myself to be still more a student than a teacher. And so uh, putting together a course on a subject is often for me a way to investigate it more formally and thoroughly. So teaching Brazilian literature, the process of trying to put together that class, I learned a lot. I learned how uh, not diverse even contemporary Brazilian literature is. Uh, a good friend of mine, Edvan Brito, who came to the University of Arkansas to start our Portuguese language program four years ago, a Brazilian, uh, came to the class and, and made a presentation on this, on how few women and how extraordinarily few authors of color there are even now in the Brazilian landscape. And I had kept butting up against this as I was trying to put together my syllabus, trying to put together a diverse syllabus. And I thought it might have something to do with translation, but it's both. I mean, it's both in the original. And then, of course, who gets brought over into English? Well, it will be the most prominent writers. And there, too, there's a real diversity problem. So that was hugely um, educational for me and has certainly informed my uh, investigations as I go forward trying to find other writers to translate. And so, yes, you asked just how does teaching inform my writing in all the ways I suppose that my other attempts to educate myself do. I've put together other classes on uh, South Asian literature, on uh, two classes on what I call the boundaries of nonfiction. So that is to say literary nonfiction that operates at the edges of what we might call nonfiction. Um, often these relate either to my interests or to writing projects that I want to do. And I'm you know, very, very fortunate in having amazing students, highly literate uh, students who bring a lot to our classroom conversations. So I just always feel our, our conversations, whether in workshop, which in, in my workshops, fiction workshops, also I assign quite a bit of outside reading in hopes that this gives all of us further frames of reference to bring to our own 
writing and out of all of those conversations, I always uh, leave feeling enriched and stimulated, right? That it's not only about somehow learning um, new ways of being, but feeling like my own practice is invigorated by that interaction. Writing can be, writing can be very lonely, um, translation less so, but uh, teaching is a way certainly of assuaging that, that loneliness. Well, thanks so much again for coming. Um, this was wonderful. It was really my pleasure. Thank you again for, uh, for your interest. Now, here's Adelice Sosa reading a short excerpt from The Woman Who Didn't Know How to Die in the original Portuguese, followed by Padma Visunathan reading from her English translation. You can read the full story and many other great works in translation at asymptotejournal.com. Thanks for listening. A atriz que não sabia morrer, Jadelice Souza. Era uma jovem atriz solitária que não sabia morrer, ou melhor, era uma personagem que precisava morrer e não sabia como. Ou ainda, era uma jovem atriz que morria cada dia, mas que no palco não sabia como se morria. Essa história me foi contada por uma jovem senhora muito bonita, cujo rosto parecia o de uma dançarina de cabaré francês do início do século, numa madrugada de outono à beira de águas no hotel de uma cidade do interior. Contou-me na ocasião que nunca esquecera de uma determinada peça de teatro representada por duas mulheres. Uma delas interpretava o papel de um cão, a outra o de uma mulher solitária que vivia com seu cão. As duas atrizes perambulavam cidades contando a história daquelas mulheres que acordarem. The Actress Who Didn't Know How to Die, by Adelice Souza, translated from the Portuguese by Padma Viswanathan. There was once a lonely young actress who didn't know how to die. Or better perhaps to say, there once was a character who needed to die but didn't know how. Or better yet, there once was a young actress who died a little each day, but didn't know how to die on stage. I was told this story by a very pretty young woman, one whose face made me think of a turn-of-the-century French cabaret dancer, one dawn in autumn, at the Riverside Hotel of a city in the interior. On this occasion, she told me that she could never forget a particular play performed by two women. One played a dog, the other a lonely woman who lived with her dog. The two actresses toured, telling the story of these two women. When they woke in the morning, each in her own hotel room, the women, not the actresses, if we can make that distinction, they always rested their gazes on a blank wall, with nothing of the past imprinted on it, as with a play script seen for the first time in a dramatic reading, as yet uncolored by the characters' thoughts and fears. The blank wall only solidified their acceptance of nothingness. And waking in a hotel room was always a surprise, just as the walls were always blank. On restless nights, the kind that can turn blank walls into dragons with a mere candle flame, the actresses would get up in a, in a desperate search for the light switch. Getting up always brought new adventures, too. They wouldn't know the furniture layout, and naturally, accidents happen but nothing serious, 
not like the seriousness of searching for the unknown. Everything was also exhausting, long streets where the eyes could recognize only what was green, an exhaustion of green, long conversations with municipal employees responsible for promoting the play, an exhaustion of the obvious, the exhaustion of committing each space and each image of every new place to memory, the room number, the location of the hotel's breakfast room. They tired of needing to learn and absorb things that would mean nothing once they left that place for another, tired of eating even, of needing to eat in the presence of people they didn't know, tired of saying good morning to those strangers, tired of performing the piece for those strangers, tired of only ever meeting strangers, tired also of being strangers themselves. This exhaustion, which seeped into everything, had even taken over their ages. The ages they had yet to reach were tired of them both. The love they still lacked had tired of hoping in vain for them to find it. Apart from which, they sensed that for single women, love was exhausting and anyway would remain absent with age. The Asymptote Podcast is produced by me, Steve Lehman, with music by The Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much to Padma Viswanathan for the conversation and the reading, and to Adelisi Sosa for her contribution as well. We'll be doing something a little different for our next episode. Stay tuned to find out what's in store. Until then, this was the Asymptote Podcast. <laughs>